Hello, welcome to the Abbey Talk series. My name is Lisa Farley. I'm coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. So I get to do a little bit of housekeeping before we begin. If I can ask you to make sure that your mobile phones are turned off, that would be great. And to be aware <coughs> of the exits in case of emergency, which are the double doors that you came in and the double doors to my left. And we just follow the instructions of staff. So let me introduce you to our panel this evening, a panel that has been assembled on the strength of word uh, of this woman here beside me, Louise O'Neill, author of Asking For It. It's an important and powerful and searing piece of writing, which is still, unfortunately, still so topical, even being referenced in the headlines this week. And of course, then we have uh, Annabelle Common, the director of the piece, uh, collaborator, co-adapter, uh, for the stage piece, Asking For It, which premiered down in Cork in June at the Everyman. Uh, it's a landmark Everyman Midsummer's Abbey Theatre production. It's come up to Dublin this week. It's opened earlier in the week. It's a sold-out show. It's the hottest ticket in town. Now, when I say it's a sold-out show, like I'm not saying you still can't get a ticket. <laughs> There's always standby. Things happen in people's lives. You can always just like take their look on them and, and get in. Uh, next, we have um, Emily Pine, Associate Professor of Modern Drama at UCD, who's written a collection of essays called Notes to Self. Um, it's six essays. You really can't read this out in public because you'll, you re you'll be in bits crying, I tell you. Emily uh, helped me uh, frame and phrase this talk earlier uh, last month, I suppose. So thank you very much, Emily, for that. And on that subject of literary thievery, we have John Boyne here with us, uh, whose recent novel, A Ladder to the Sky, uh, deals with literary theft and gives an insight into the cut and thrust of the writer's life and the publishing world. It, it's a savage read, and I savoured every chapter of it, John. John's other work includes The Boy in the Striped Pajamas and The Heart's Invisible Furies, which were international bestsellers. Clearly, I just brought these books with me so I could say that I, I had read them and that I own them. And then actually, as I flick through the page, I noticed that this is actually my sister's copy. So, uh, uh, John, I'm going to have to buy another copy uh, for that. Um, so let's begin at the beginning, Louise. Can I ask you, um, asking for, you started writing it in 2014. Uh, it was published in 2015. Mm. Now, the world feels as if it kind of tilted on its axis since then. Um, can I ask you what compelled you to write this story back then? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, looking back, there was probably a few different, um, there was a few different reasons. Uh, I think there had been two cases in the US. Um, one was called the Steubenville case and the other one was called the Maryville case. Um, and they happened um, only a few months apart and in very different um, areas of the states. But the details of the two cases were, you know, eerily similar. Uh, they were, you know, involved a very young girl um, who went to a party um, and she got so drunk that she passed out. And then she was gang raped by members of the local football team. And um, photos were taken um, and circulated online. And I suppose what I found really striking about both cases was how the victim seemed to be re-victimized and re-traumatized um, by the reaction of, I suppose, the community at large, um, who all kind of banded to get together to protect the perpetrator um, and to isolate the victim. And I suppose I'd heard the term uh, rape culture. I suppose that had been a term that had been used a lot in feminist um, literature and in the feminist community. And I'd always found it 
probably slightly far-fetched. Um, I think I really did believe that rape was a crime that as a society that we saw as being very serious um, and that it was treated as such. And I suppose it was at the, the coverage um, of the Steubenville case in the States, um, I remember watching, it was a CNN reporter, um, and she said it was a very sad day in court today to see these young men have their promising futures being ruined. Um, and she didn't mention the victim at all. And it was this moment where just the hairs of the back of my neck um, stood up. And I think that was, I realized, I was like, this is what rape culture is. Um, and then, you know, the, I suppose the slain girl case um, happened closer to home. Um, and I'm sure you probably remember this. It was a young girl at a Slane Music Festival who was photographed giving oral sex to a number of different men. Um, and I suppose what I was really struck by was how she was really vilified. Um, and there was no mention of the men involved. It was as if they had been completely innocent bystanders. You know, oh no, my trousers have fallen down. Oops. Um, and I had a, I, I was having this conversation with a, a group of male friends um, and they kept saying, it's, it's different. You know, it's different for men and women. You just have to accept that. Um, <laughs> you can imagine how well that went down. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just, I remember going home and feeling so, infuriated because it just highlighted to me as was the double standard um, in this country the way that we view male and female sexuality the way that the former is seen as a very natural thing and that the latter has always been seen in Irish um, culture as something that needs to be controlled or policed um, and I suppose I, when I feel that angry and when I feel as if I feel a bit powerless I suppose I do take to the page a lot of the time because that's where I feel like as if I can gain back some of my power or that I can regain my own voice. Um, and asking for it was born out of that. The initial reaction to it, uh, you talk about that far-fetched scenario. Was it a struggle in the beginning to kind of educate, uh, even just around the vocabulary around that? I suppose it's so funny now because these... Um, like these uh, these issues, and I suppose this language feels like it has really become quite embedded in just the way that we speak. Um, but definitely, when the book came out, there was there was some education. You know, I think I was really standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, the the work that had been done within this sector and within activists. You know, I I suppose they had done all the hard work for me, um, and I just needed to sort of push a you know an open door basically. Um, but it was interesting when it first came out because a lot of people, um, I suppose, uh, particularly I think there was a few um, a few men who did say to me that they felt like this story was far-fetched, that this couldn't have happened in Ireland. Um, and I suppose I always found that to be a little bit ridiculous given, I suppose, the, the history that we have had in this country. Um, of policing female sexuality, um, but also of you know sex scandals and sexual abuse, um, and of course you know the 2009 uh, case in Listowel where a woman was raped um, and you know was caught on CCTV camera, um, and after the man who had raped her was convicted, you know 50 local men lined up outside the courthouse uh, to shake his hand, including the local priest. Um, while she had no one with her, just someone from uh, the Rape Crisis Centre. And that was 2009, you know. Um, it wasn't exactly like it was 40 years ago. So I suppose I always felt like this was entirely possible. Um, and most of the women I knew um, also felt this was entirely possible because we had lived this. This was our lived experience. You know, we knew how possible this was because sexual violence was it seemed to be, I suppose, the price that we had to pay to exist 
um, in this country um, to move in this world in a female body. Uh, it feels like that, you know, we're meant to be living in these enlightened times, uh, in this post-time after the Belfast rape trial. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to ask the panel, I suppose, their views on what happened down in Cork on that uh, court case with the 17-year-old, and which is only in the news this week, uh, with the insinuation about uh, the type of underwear she was wearing. And this was a comment made by the senior counsel, who was a woman. Uh, yeah, Louise, would you have a, a take on that? Um... I mean, I, I do. I mean, it was interesting when I was when we were making the asking for a documentary. Um, you know, we did speak to people in the legal system, and a lot of it was actually really enlightening because you know I suppose my my question would have been how can you do this? How can you ask these questions and go home at night and look at yourself in the mirror and know that you know that you have again probably re-traumatized someone who is deeply traumatized already. Um, and I think the way that they look at it is that it's sort of like a game um, and it's who is going to win ultimately. Um, and I think, I mean, I find that really depressing. I find that really disheartening because it's not a game. Um, the, you know, this is someone's life that you're dealing with. Um, and I do think that there has to be some sort of training um, or education to, I suppose, help the people who are having direct contact with victims to understand what kind of language <laughs> that they should or should not use, um, or what you know, what kind of behaviour is or is not appropriate, um, and you would think that that would be something that they would inherently understand, but you know, clearly it is not. Um, and when it comes to this attitude of you know, well, she was wearing lace underwear, and it's it's just ridiculous. You know, women women get raped in their pajamas. They get raped wearing short skirts. You know, women who you know, are in a, a burqa, you know, can get raped. It has nothing to do with what you're wearing. You know, rape has nothing to do with the person or the victim who is being raped. It has everything to do with the person who is doing the raping. Um, it is the rapist who is at fault, um, and they are the people that we should be questioning and placing the blame at their feet. It's just, it's appalling to think, though, that there's that ignorance, uh, willful ignorance at, at, at that top level of the judicial system. Annabelle and Emily, would you be up to date with that case or have a view on it? Um, well, I've yes, I've heard of it and the comments that were made by Ruth Coppinger as well. Yeah, like I, I would agree with Louise that the idea that what you wear can be seen as a form of consent to something, to a sexual act, is, is a nonsense. And similarly within the book and within the play, that idea that a victim's history um, and sexual history can be used against her, um, while the person who is accused can't, and their history is not actually brought into the context of a case at all, and is seen as inadmissible a lot of the time. Um, so I, I do think there's a real problem with that, um, and the lack of support that uh, a victim has in going to trial as well, um, a woman came in to speak to us from the Rape Crisis Centre and she just said really what people need and what women need is support and uh, to get them through the process. But the odds are really stacked against them. I also just think that idea that when you talk about the ignorance really of, it came out in, uh, the, in the Belfast case about the idea that someone would call out. Mm. Um, and, and I think, it's a great ignorance of the psychology of where you are in your head when something like that happens. And the idea that you can call out 
I, I, I say very few people when they're in the state of fear. Um, we freeze, I think, a lot of the time. Um, I'm not saying everyone freezes, but a lot of us do. Um, so the notion that you can have that voice, uh, again, it seems ignorant. <laughs> Emily and John, I, I suppose there's no getting away from these very high, well, one particularly high-profile case. I just wondered what your views on on the on the Belfast trial, and then just recently. It's, there's a moment in asking for it, or it, it recurs actually, where the young girl is saying um, is being kind of encouraged by her therapist to say it's not my fault, and to shift the blame away from her. And I think all of these examples demonstrate the extent to which we have, as a culture, internalized the idea that it is always women, a female responsibility, and whether it's responsibility for sexual violence or uh, other, other things that happen to and through and, and with uh, female bodies. Uh, and again, you know, the, the judicial side of that is the burden of evidence that falls onto the female body, whether that's that the a female body has to prove that it's been raped, prove that it was innocent, prove that it didn't ask for it, and so on. Um, but also then, the way we tell that story, um, the way we, we tell the story as a culture, uh, and the kinds of, and, and Louisa said this already, the kinds of language that we use that are deeply inappropriate for uh, people who have been through really deep trauma, and do nothing then to reach any kind of healing. So there's no kind of, you know, we also have a very retributive justice system. Um, so there's no kind of sense of education, rehabilitation, changing of attitudes. And, you know, I remember hearing a comment a few years ago about uh, someone who had, who had died after sexual violence. And again, she had uh, met this man uh, through an online chat room and had been sexually explicit in her emails to him. And the comment was, well, there were two of them in it, um, but only one of them is dead. And uh, so it's really striking the way that that there's just a level of unconscious bias towards and against women uh, that we that we live within and that we end up reiterating. And I know, as well, like uh, from having published myself now a description of uh, my own uh, experience of sexual violence, the number of people who have said to me since then, oh, I felt exactly that, exactly that same thing happened to me. Um, exactly those same emotions happened to me after, before, during, and after the event. Um, but I never spoke about it, and I had never spoken about it either. And there, there is a huge barrier uh, against women speaking out because we see how women who do speak out are treated. And that has to change in order for uh, in order for the whole culture to change. Yeah. John, do you want to have a word on that? Yeah. Um, well, with regard to the case we've been listening to over the last day or two, uh, and I was listening to it on um, Pat Kenny this morning, and I think I think Louise is right in saying that the barristers in those cases uh, they they do see it as as you said as a game as sort of winning, and I can almost understand the idea that a barrister, whoever they're defending, has to find some way to defend even the indefensible. I suppose what surprised me more was the idea of being on the jury. That if you know, you're sitting on a jury and somebody says what, the, what the, the barrister said about the clothes that the girl was wearing, regardless of whether the barrister is a man or a woman, if I was sitting on a jury and somebody said that, I would be just rolling my eyes thinking, I would have thought it was a very stupid remark for any barrister, regardless of gender, to make today. I would have thought a lot of juries uh, would say that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, you can give me a hundred reasons why this might not have happened, but that's not one of them. You know, so I was—I th thought it was kind of a dumb remark for the uh, the barrister to have made. 
Um, and re with regard to the case earlier in the year in Belfast, well, I grew up in, uh, I went to school in Terranure College, which was a rugby school. And timely as it is, only yesterday, my English teacher from school was arrested uh, with many charges of sexual assault against kids who were in my class and in my school at that time. So I know that culture. I know the rugby school culture. I know what it is to be, well, I wasn't really a, a rugby head. Um, I was more sort of um, getting pounded by the rugby heads. Um, but, uh, but I know what those attitudes are like. And while back in the 80s when I was in school, maybe we probably had like less, um, uh, less connection, I would say, to, to girls' schools that they would have now. Um, I know that a lot of those guys were just uh, awful people. And um, when the case happened earlier in the year, was I surprised to hear people coming on the radio and saying, well, you know, they've been, they've been uh, when, the, when the case was, was resolved, you know, let these poor guys go back to um, their, their country to play for their country. And, you know, and uh, obviously one has to be careful what one says, but um, I think a lot of people, myself included, would have been rather surprised by the verdict of that case. So if, you, if you're going to behave like that in a public fashion, whether or not you're guilty of a crime, uh, I don't think you deserve an awful lot of sympathy at the end of it. Yeah, I was watching the headlines, um, I guess, same as you, John, about Tenure College. My brothers went there as well, and I suppose I wasn't surprised when uh, the pictures of, of that man, who we, uh, he was quite familiar from all those Tenure College yearbooks, um, and it seems that we've been talking about that case for decades, and it's taken decades for that case to come. It has taken a long time. I think the police have been building that file for a long time. Um, but, you know, in Terranure, there was, there was quite a lot of stories like that, as I'm sure there was in many schools that mm. people here have been to uh, as well. Um, I just wanted to say, though, um, I suppose what I found really striking this year was people taking to the streets um, mm. after these verdicts, you know, with the um, I Believe Her rally um, after the Belfast rape trial um, and now again in Cork you know people protesting that's massive that feels like a real shift to me that feels like I think women in particular seem really angry um, and I think that's good because I think that so long you know when when things like this happened you know so many of us internalized you know internalized all of that pain and internalized all of that I suppose, anger and, you know, turned it against ourselves and sort of like self-loathing and, you know, what, how, you know, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have, I should, I should have worn something else and I, I was drinking and I went back to his house and, you know, this is my fault. Um, and I think that it's really wonderful to see people say enough is enough. We will not stand for this anymore. Yeah, they're shouting about it. Louise, I have a question actually about that activism and um, as that work of fiction that you've written kind of moves under the public gaze from a work of fiction to an everyday reality that we would now read in the newspaper. Um, is there a shift in the responsibility as the role of the writer? Did you necessarily have to become that activist now? Um, and do you identify as an activist? Um, no, I mean, I would, definitely. I think, I suppose, when it, when it first came out, um, when Asking For It was first released, um, it did kind of feel like I was the only feminist in the village type thing. You know, it was like I was getting invited on to every chat show to talk about it um, and or, you know, every TV program and every uh, radio show. Um, and I did feel um, a huge sense of responsibility, which I felt from the very first moment that I started writing that book, um, because I suppose I had been speaking to so many um, uh, survivors of sexual violence. You know, I, I had gone and I had worked with the Sexual Violence Centre in Cork 
Um, and I was really aware, I suppose, of how stereotypes um, around, you know, rape, around rape culture and around um, the uh, victims, how deeply ingrained they were in our society. And I really didn't want to create something that would either reinforce some of those stereotypes or that would cause further harm uh, to people who had been, you know, hurt beyond repair in some cases. Um, so I think I always felt this incredibly heavy weight of just, I want this to be as authentic and accurate as possible and also as galvanizing as possible. You know, I wanted people to read it and just feel so furious um, at our legal system, at, you know, our culture, at the way that, you know, victims are treated. Um, so, you know, I had a barrister read it um, and I had Mary Crilly from the Sexual Violence Centre read it um, and I just was like, you know, please just let me know if there's anything that you want me to take out or you don't think is right. Um, and then obviously, you know, I suppose as it kind of took off, um, I, yeah, I suppose I did become, a, you know, a bit of an ac accidental activist. And it was, I, you know, I, I suppose I felt very privileged uh, to have a voice, to have a platform, to be able to highlight issues that I, you know, that I thought were important, you know, particularly regarding, you know, violence against women, whether that was domestic violence or sexual violence. Um, and then with, you know, repealing the Eighth Amendment, um, I felt very grateful to have a platform, you know, with, you know, to speak about that. I suppose after a while, it did, like... It, Sometimes it did become a weight in many ways. You know, there was, it still happens every single time I do a reading or any time I do a signing, whenever I go into a school, someone will always come up afterwards and say, you know, we'll want to share their story, we'll want to share their experience. Um, or, you know, they would have emailed me or emailed my agent. And it was such an honor that people felt that they were able to tell me those stories. But I think I was so afraid that I would say the wrong thing um, or that I, you know, I don't know that I would, that I would again, as I said, you know, re-traumatize them in some way. And I, what I tried to do was just give them the number of the rape crisis center um, nearest to them. And but really, I suppose I don't even know if they wanted me to say anything. I think at the end of the day, all they probably wanted was for me just to listen um, and to say I believe you, um, and you know, I see you. I think that's what everyone wants, really. Um, a similar question to Emily and John. <clears throat> Have you found that you've become the spokesperson for things, Emily, that you've written about, or, or John, a spokesperson, you know, for something like the Holocaust? Uh, is there a weight of responsibility there? Yeah, just just listening to what Louise was saying there, I, I, I I've felt that way myself at times. That you write a book and then, if it really takes off, like uh, like asking for it did or, or striped pajamas did, that you do find yourself becoming uh, unexpectedly a spokesperson for a subject that, at times, as you just said, you feel you don't want to say the wrong thing. And you know, in all my travels over the years with that book, you know, I've met lots of Holocaust survivors telling me their stories. And when I'm on a stage talking about it, there is always that part of me thinking, who 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 on earth am I to? to tell this, to talk about this, you know, and, and just being always nervous of, of getting it wrong, saying it wrong. Uh, it took me quite a few years to feel confident in myself in, com in that subject uh, because I guess I always felt, you know, it's a 200-page it's a book, novel, that I wrote for, for young readers. And, you know, am I qualified then to start talking about it, you know, that much publicly? But then eventually you do. You, you, and and the, the novel, I think, becomes... Uh, a platform for you then to, to form your own opinions uh, and to have a voice on that. Uh, 
but to be able to acknowledge that, look, I wasn't there, you know, this didn't happen to me. And the job of a novelist is, is to imagine, you know, it's to think of stories and uh, of other people's stories and write them and hopefully write them in an authentic way. Yeah, and it's, it's strange um, when you publish something, and, and we were talking about this earlier, because the difference between publishing something that is fiction and something that is non-fiction and, and the different resonances of that. And I think um, it's strange for me because in the book I talk about the fact that I never, never spoke about uh, having been raped as a teenager by two men that I knew. Um, and suddenly, you know, 25 years later, I publish the story and suddenly now it's very, very public and I am expected to talk about it. Uh, and I, am, I think I am reaching that point where I am able to talk about the writing of it and I am able to talk about the experience of sharing it and the idea of it as a narrative. But no, I have to start drawing a boundary around not talking about my own experience of it, which is the, the, the story that I've written. And I think boundaries around difficult material are really important, whether you're a reader um, or a writer or however you're engaging with the material. I think Louise is absolutely right. I have now had a lot of people's stories as well. One of the other essays in the book is about uh, infertility and not being able to have children. And I get emails almost every day from women telling the stories of their miscarriages. and. And, and many people saying, oh, thank you for breaking the silence. And what is extraordinary is I am by far not the first person to write about these subjects. And you realize um, when you are putting those stories out in the world and people are greeting them and saying, thank you uh, for writing this, you realize how much silence there is, how oppressive all of those layers of silence are, and how we have to keep breaking it over and over and over break it, it reforms, break it, it reforms. And I think that idea of kind of the public marches um, has been a shift away from that and towards a kind of communal breaking of the silence. I think that uh, feels like a route uh, to changing things. But I think with, with nonfiction though as well, surely if people ask you questions about your experiences, it's, it's valid to say, well, I've, I've written it down. And what I want to say is there on the page. And if I wanted to say more in it, the, the essay would be longer. You know, that, that it's, I, I've said it right there. It is valid. It is strange how, because I published it, and, and, I, and I have published it, so I have put it out in the world, um, how it, it makes me almost fair game for strange mm -hmm. questions. So one uh, critic said, uh, said to me, in a somewhat accusatory tone, that I had put the um, description of being raped as a teenager two-thirds of the way through the book. And he said, I don't understand why you didn't put it first in the book. Why didn't you want to hit people between the eyes with it? Well, A, it's not what I wanted to do. B, it's my story. I get to write it how I want. Um, and see, I just, again, it totally misses how how this experience affects the people who, who are experiencing it. and 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 my right to control the story. So it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult subject area, and as a result, I think, there are learning the rules of how to deal with it. And I'm, and I'm interested as well, because now asking for it is on the stage, bringing, being brought to huge audiences, that must, and I'm curious to hear, Annabelle, what you think about this, like, that must bring a certain kind of responsibility with it as well. Yeah, actually, Annabelle, I, I have a question about, I suppose, how you collaborated with the writer Maeve McHugh, and whilst remaining faithful to the novel, and then you're trying to create something new. Would you mind talking about that? 
Well, we were both, because we were both so affected by the book, and uh, it's such a brilliant book, <laughs> um, <laughs> that we wanted to remain as faithful to it um, as, as we could. And, and actually, artistically, we were just aware, how, how do you make a different new form out of it, and how do you make a piece of theatre out of a novel, um, and to make it dramatic. And what I mean by that is dramatic for the stage where there are tensions. The book is such a different form um, that it, uh, there are different demands of doing a piece of theatre. So um, I think the starting point for us was, and was the first conversation we had, was the character of Jamie in the book, which is Zoe in the play, um, and that she had uh, been raped uh, and um, and and it's very kind of subtly in the book there, but it was the dramatic conflict of someone who is potentially going to shatter a world that uh, is propped up by everyone. Uh, and what does it mean to have that threat hanging over Emma in this case when she puts so much store by the things that the town puts store by, which is... Uh, money and looks and the team and community and the church and so all those things that we all and brands and all those things that we all support <laughs> and all those things that we all feed into um, and and the type of clothes you wear and the glasses you buy and all of those things so um, uh, so how and so that felt like a dramatic tension um, and uh, so that was a kind of a starting point for us. Um, I'm very interested in looking at uh, the culture of young people. My daughter's a teenager, so I suppose I responded to it very much in my daughter hit teenage years right when I was reading the book. And everything I was reading, I kind of saw, not everything I was reading, but just the taste of that environment I could see beginning to grow and and for her to engage with like she puts on she wears dresses up to there when she goes out she puts on false tan she she does all those things and goes to clubs for second year school so she does she's in that world and and it's funny because you talk about going back to thongs and wearing things like that you go there are, everyone's buying them they're in all the shops and we all promote them and we all say buy them and they're all on sale and all of those things and and so they are, you know. Um, so there's nothing unusual about those items of clothing. They are commercial items. Um, it's only when they get used in the way that people choose, and you're talking about jurors not to look at, you know, and they go, oh, no, but we don't engage in that way. Anyway, so I suppose we were just looking at the context and the environment of the world and how do we show that, and how do we show that from the young people's point of view. Um, so I suppose it was always looking at where drama lies, really, and where there are dramatic tensions on stage, and then also how to give form and shape to that in the theatrical way, um, both through writing, but also how we chose to present it from directors as well. I suppose how you chose to present the, the, the challenging and difficult material, would you talk about that? Yeah, like I suppose the big uh, question was how do you deal with the, the rape itself? And that was something, like it's, it's interesting because there are two incidents. There's one which is the incident with Paul and then is one that we hear afterwards about via images and what is said about it 
but of course she can't remember. So it's how you deal with the incident really initially to with Paul where she has this dialogue in her head that uh, in, in the book um, where she is debating she, uh, you know, what to do, but she does say no and she says she wants to go back to the party, but she, again, she hasn't got a strong enough voice and she doubts her voice. Um, I suppose girls are often taught to doubt their voice and to question mm. as well. Maybe this is what it should be. Um, so we, we looked at different ways and scenes were written of it, but it always felt, um, it felt it wasn't doing what it needed to do dramatically to, to connect. And I felt it would always be a dilution of what was in the book. So we both agreed and we just took it out of the book. <laughs> and I guess in directing it, I was quite keen to make it like a piece of installation so that we are listening in. So it was written as a piece taken really directly out of the book. And I suppose you could have used it as direct address, but the minute it's direct address, it's past tense. And I quite liked the idea of being uncomfortable so that we are listening in on something that can be happening just down the hallway in the bedroom of the party you're at. Um, and actually, and so we recorded that live and that in a way felt the most appropriate way maybe to deal with the material rather than showing it, mm. to have us listen in on something that is uncomfortable and listen in to her head. Um, and so we just use AV and we don't show it, we just use AV and sound and so we had to act it out in the recording. So the actor playing Paul, Charlie, and Lauren, who played Emma, we, had, we acted out the scene in the rehearsal room and recorded it um, so that it would sound live. Yeah. Uh, can I ask, actually, is there anyone that, say, hasn't read the book at all? Okay, hope we haven't ruined it on you there. I don't think we've actually ruined anything when, if any of you are going upstairs to see the production. I think, yeah. uh, th th I think there's nothing revealed that won't be revealed very quickly when, when you sit upstairs. Um, and also the book was published like three years ago, so there's no <laughs> excuse, <Yeah>. okay? Um, <laughs> the lady in the middle um, there hasn't gotten around to it yet. Um, actually, I just, I, I wanted just to, um, to follow up on that. It was really important to me that the actual incident, like the gang rape, wasn't in the text um, because I feel like so often in uh, popular culture whether that's in books or on tv or in movies rape is so often used like as a plot device um, and then also almost as a way to titillate um, and I think it's led to this very strange confusion um, between sex and rape um, and this was a way of kind of collating the two and I think that that's the distinction between them has to be made and that like you know rape has absolutely nothing to do with sex it's about power and dominance um and control and anger really um and I suppose I didn't want to show you know I didn't want to have that shown um but the scene that you were describing with um with Paul I suppose what I I did want to um show that because it's very ambiguous. Um, I think there's probably a lot of 15, well, maybe not even just 15 year olds. I think there's a lot of people who would read that um, and not really pick up on the fact that it's very clearly non-consensual. Um, and I've had a lot of people say to me that that was actually the scene that they found the most disturbing because they were like, oh yeah, that happened to me when I was 16. Exact same thing happened to me when I was 17. And they were like, I never looked at it in those terms. Um, and I remember my dad was the first person to read the book He's the first person always to, to read um, any of the, when the proofs arrive. Um, and I remember I was really nervous about how he would react to asking for it because, you know, he was a sports star. You know, he was played football in New York. Um, you know, he's lived in my 
great grandfather has owned our, you know, the butcher shop was established in 1909. You know, it's like he's very much like kind of, you know, a pillar of the small town. Um, and he came to me after he read it and he said, this is such an important book. Um, and he said, I just hope you're ready. And I was a bit nervous. I was like, what do you mean you hope I'm ready? Um, and he said, because there's going to be people reading this book. And he said, and some people will read it and realize that they have been raped and other people will read it and realize that they've raped someone. And he said, those people will not want to have that realization and you will be the messenger. Um, and he just said, I just hope you're ready. And he was right and I wasn't ready at all. <laughs> um, but um, yes, I just think that, you know, it's just something that kind of has always stayed with me. And just speaking about that opening night and the actual stage experience, Emily Pine, you might be able to help me out on this one. Actually, Annabelle, I mentioned this to you on opening night. I've seen the play twice. I saw it on at dress rehearsal, uh, which is a working night. There's maybe only 20 people in the room. So it's, you know, a very subdued reaction. And then on opening night, I was sitting maybe midway in the auditorium. And what I could see ahead of me was just a line of um, heads that were lowered. And there was a person in front of me whose world was just getting smaller and they were just getting more wound up and smaller. So that was you know, coming up to the first half. And then in the second half, there was a young man in front of me who was just inconsolable. Now, he was the first person to his feet uh, at the standing ovation, but it was the strangest experience to hear a ripple of sobbing uh, just trickling through the auditorium. And Emily, I suppose what I'm thinking of is that the transaction, reading a book is a very private transaction. When you're sitting in an auditorium and you're sharing that experience with, with everyone else, it's a, it's a very unique theatrical experience. It is. I think the communal nature of theatre is one of the, the elements that makes it so important as an art form. Not that I think art needs to be important in order to justify itself, it needs to be beautiful and amazing, but uh, the, that communal... I mean, again, I was sitting there on opening night hearing the, the, the crying, and it seems to me that seeing something like that happening on stage as an audience, you are asked not just to be a consumer of that spectacle, um, but you are asked to be a, a witness, an ethical witness to uh, this as a story, and as a story that we recognize is not um, just this one instance of it, but that is representative of so many stories. And I think then also, we are also witnessing each other in the room, and um, we're witnessing uh, our kind of collective empathy um, for what is happening. And I think, to me, acting as a witness is so important that is such an important role for audiences to to play, and um, because and we've talked about this for you know for all of this time here that speaking out is incredibly important, but speaking out doesn't work if nobody is listening, mm -hmm. and maybe the really strong kind of pillar of the current feminist revolution is the number of people who are willing to listen. Um, and that active listening um, is what makes speaking out possible and turns it from being a kind of individual act of resistance into being a collective moment of change. So I, I, I would never underestimate the power of, of theater, theatrical moments to do that. And I really felt that in the second half of asking for it. Mm. Um, really the intensity of what was happening both on stage and in the auditorium was was deeply personally i'm actually getting moved again <laughs> thinking about it deeply personally moving um but also i think kind of socially moving as well 
other times that I've felt it in this building has been um, in 2010, the production of No Escape by Mary Raftery, the response to the Ryan Report. Again, that sense of doing something that is, um, you're turning up as a member, as an audience member, uh, as, a, as, a mem as a citizen as well, um, as someone who is, who is there for a theatrical night out. And there are, there are these moments um, that you can identify. And they are often about uh, creating space for voices of people who have been marginalized or disenfranchised and who are being in through the theatrical kind of staging of their um, story being given a platform for their voices to be heard uh, and, and again that's why public institutions like the National Theatre are so important. Emily I might stay with you um, I'm conscious of our time now yes. so we'll be um, whizzing through it um, you talked about your experience of writing your essays out um, and in doing so, you're working something out for yourself. But when you intend to um, publish it, does that do something to the work? Uh, it's, it's strange. Um, again, and, and the other writers might want to, to respond to this as well. There's that moment where you have to finish it, right? And you, you have to say, this is the story, and I'm putting it out in the world. And um, I have tried to make uh, the essays as truthful and as honest as close to my own experience as I can, but they are also obviously slices of my life. Um, and there is that story. There, is, there are also um, moments in each essay where I quite self-consciously step back and say as part of the narrative, why am I writing this? Um, have I done a good enough job? Um, what, you know, uh, could I have written it differently as well? And I think we have to be honest about that. We could tell our stories in multiple ways because we, each person is never just one thing. Um, so yeah, the, the making it, it public is partly saying this, this is the story, um, but my life continues, so the story kind of changes. Um, and there are days where I'm, I'm, I'm fine with things that have happened and days where I struggle with some of the grief that I document in the book. Um, and, and now what, what is amazing is for me, and Louise, you mentioned this, I get so many emails from people um, who have read the book and who want to share their stories, and it is becoming a conversation. Uh, and I think actually there's there's another book there of other people's stories of of creating a, a volume of that. John, am I right in thinking your work has become more personal in recent years? You've taken it from I suppose a historical setting to something that might be more similar to you. Yeah, early novels I wrote were mostly historically based, and I tended to keep myself out of it completely. And I did it deliberately. You know, I, I didn't want to be in the books. I didn't want anybody in the books who friends or family would recognize. I, uh, I wanted it to be very distant to me. And it was only uh, with A History of Loneliness, which came out, I guess, about five years ago or something, um, which dealt with the child abuse scandals in the church in Ireland, uh, that, I, that I started writing personal novels. And I started writing novels set in Ireland. And most Irish writers write novels set in Ireland that I never had before. And then I wrote two in a row. I wrote that in Hearts of Visible Furies. And um, I, I think I just, for, it was just a personal thing that I needed to get, uh, I needed to be a little older, a bit more confident and mature in my writing, uh, and to feel that I could do that. I know if I had written History of Loneliness 10 years earlier, when I was, say, in my, my late 20s, it wouldn't have worked. It would have been a, just a diatribe against the church. Um, it would have just been a mess. Whereas, actually, if you're going to write that, uh, or if you're going to write about that, you have to 
you have to find a way into the story that hasn't been told before. So, you know, from somebody who has not committed crimes, but who has been complicit and is only gradually realizing that they are complicit and that their complicity is, um, makes them as culpable as the criminals themselves. Uh, I couldn't have done that when I was in my late 20s. I would have just, uh, the, every character would have been like a Hannibal Lecter, basically. They would have just been total monster. And you can't do that as a novelist. You know, you have to have um, very ambiguous kind of, you, know, you, you want the reader to go away from a book feeling that they want to talk about it, that they're unsure where they stand on, on characters and stories. Like, for example, when I finished, when I read Asking for It originally, um, my initial response at the end of reading it was, was, an, was a sense of sort of fury at the ending, in a way, you know, and um, because it didn't give me the ending that I wanted. And then I, you know, quickly came to realize that, of course, but it's the truthful ending, you know. And I remember there was a TV show a couple of years ago, I can't remember what it was called, it was like three or four parts in RTE about a little girl who went missing, and the family uh, couldn't find her, and everything, and everybody was watching it, and then on the last night, of the last episode, we never found out what happened to her, and everybody was complaining on Twitter, I've wasted four nights watching this, but then I, re you know, and I was thinking, but isn't that the whole point, because people whose children go missing, mm. most of the time, they don't know, mm. so you're left, the, re the reader of the novel, or the viewer of the TV show, or something like that, is left with that sense of frustration, which is, which mirrors the, the, the real life events, and that's what creating art, I think, is about. So I've enjoyed writing much more personal stuff. And then in the latest one, you know, digging into the literary world and making a little bit of mischief um, <laughs> in it, I think. Um, this is a question, I suppose, for the whole panel. Um, I feel, I suppose, when you're talking about truthful accounts, um, I'm always searching for something that reaches me, whether you know it's in a book form or in a theatrical form. And I have little or no patience anymore <laughs> for things that aren't true and clear. And, and kind, I just feel as if it's, it's wasting time otherwise. So pretty intense. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about vulnerability. Uh, so is there a cost to vulnerability uh, in public? And is it different uh, if you're a man or a woman? Well, I, I mean, I don't know if any of us can really define what it's like for the other gender in that place. But uh, from my perspective, I felt that with the novels I've written more recently, as I said, which are personal, I think I have a responsibility then to talk about the personal elements of them. Uh, when I wrote his, just historically based books, if an interviewer would ask me questions about my personal life or anything, I, I couldn't see the relevance to it, and I wasn't trying to be snotty about it, I just couldn't see what the connection would be. However, if you're gonna write a book about um, child abuse in the church and set half of it in Terranure College where you went to school <laughs> and if you're going to write a book about 70 years of Irish history about uh, people growing up gay and uh, how Ireland uh, how Irish society has changed during that time and you are gay then it would be um, it would be disingenuous not to take a not to be able to talk about that and take a public position on it uh, and I've had no issue with that you know the only I, it doesn't bother me when people say anything nasty um, I, I expect, certainly with the church book, you know, a priest wrote in the Irish Times asking for people to pray for my soul. And, um, you know, that's all right. You know, I probably, probably could deal with it. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I think, I think we all know, whether it's a, a novel, essays, a play, a novel, I think we all know the value of our own work and whether we've achieved artistically what we set out to achieve in it. And you don't do it every time. You know, mm -hmm. I've written 17 novels and I could look at them and say, you know, 
I got it right this time, this time, this time, and maybe here or there, and maybe I just didn't get it as good. Um, but I don't need anybody to tell me I'm great or I'm terrible. Mm. You know, I think I know myself. So, um, but I guess from what I can see from friends over the years, over the last 20 years, women do have it harder because certainly in novel writing, they have to work twice as hard to get half the credit. They are not instantly um, accepted into the literary world in the way that a young male writer with gorgeous flowing locks is going to be considered uh, a literary writer and would be reviewed by male reviewers. And uh, frankly, you know, when I talk to students in creative writing courses, frankly, hate to say it, but if you're a good-looking young woman who's written a novel, the publisher is going to try to put you into a more popular fiction. They're going to, you're going to have much more issues with jacket design. Mm. There is the whole question about... I'm, I, sorry, I'll, I'll draw this to an end. This is my hobby horse. But, you know, the jacket images, you know, are going to be completely different. There's the issue of what is popular fiction, what is literary fiction. Um, you know, John Banville will sell tens of thousands of copies of his novels because he's a wonderful writer. Isn't that popular fiction? Hmm. Um, you know, how is that? It's, how is it unpopular fiction? Uh, and it's just the way that the publishing world works. And it can, you know, it, and it's when, you know, when somebody dies, when like, you know, a Norman Mailer or a Philip Roth um, die, uh, and, or John Updike, and then it's, you know, who's the greatest writer? And it's always going to be some white American male. It's always going to be somebody like Jonathan Franzen, who writes mm -hmm. big, important books. And you know they're important because they have one-word titles, like freedom <laughs> and purity. But what about Anne Tyler? What about Toni mm -hmm. Morrison? Mm -hmm. What about Jameson Ward? What about, you know, people like that? And they don't get the initial, you know, it, they, it's crazy. And, and these are the same people that would, you know, you get these professors on campuses in America who said they don't teach books by women. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it drives me scatty because of the fact that they claim to love literature. And to me, it is exactly like saying, I don't teach books by people who are over five foot 11. You know? Or if somebody said, I don't teach books that are written by men, it would infuriate me just as much. I think it's as stupid an idea. And you know, on occasion, I've had women say to me, I don't read books by men. And I think, just think, well, that's idiotic. You're missing out on loads of great male writers. And it's the same thing the other way around. So it just drives me a little bit, clearly, scatty. <laughs> <laughs> um, Louise, did you want to get in on that? Uh, yeah. That double standard, perhaps? Um, no, I suppose, I mean, I, I totally um, agree with John. I suppose, like, I do think, I can understand maybe for, for women if they might say, you know what, for a year, I'm only going to read um, female writers because I think that going, going through the school system and then if you, you know, I studied English um, at uh, Trinity and I suppose there is this kind of literary canon which does tend to favour, you know, straight white men in general, you know, so I suppose that maybe... People might say, "Well, actually, I'm going to make a con you know, like, an, a really concentrated effort to read more writers of color or to read more women, just to kind of balance out the scale." But then I think you do have to say, um, "Well, I just want to read good books, you know," um, and I think that's really important. And I read, I read all of John's books, and he's a man, <laughs> and I really enjoyed them. Um, but uh, what I think what we were talking about vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes that women are maybe expected to perform vulnerability um, around their work. Um, we're supposed to, you know, I think there's a greater expectation that we will share um, our stories um, and particularly, I think, our trauma um, on sort of in a, in a public space. And while I do think that there, it's really important to destigmatize um, a lot of issues, you know, around sexual violence, or you know, in my own personal experience with you know mental health issues or with eating disorders, um, I would also be very wary that an author feel under pressure to disclose personal experience that they 
aren't ready to disclose or that they don't really want to disclose. Um, and but you know, I remember um, John during the summer. Um, I emailed John, and we were sort of talking about, I suppose, the power of vulnerability um, and the idea of the vulnerability hangover um, after you share something that is very private. After you share that publicly, it can feel like a, a massive relief at start at the start, and then it's followed by this just horrible sense of just feeling so exposed and vulnerable and really afraid, um, in my experience anyway. Um, and I think it's about really taking care of yourself through that. But also, Sorry, if, 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 I, if I may yeah, just interrupt for one second, especially today where when you do those sort of things, you're going to have social media. Mm. Yeah. And you know it's yeah. out there that even if, even if you choose not to go on, you know the numbers are clicking up maybe with notifications. And, yeah. and some of it's good and some of it just, you, you can be so shocked by people's complete lack of empathy mm. or lack of compassion um, when you're talking about something that's so deeply personal um, and, you know, a, a, such a, I suppose, a, a deeply held belief or trauma um, and that they just accuse you of using it to sell books when that is, I mean, really, I would be very shocked if anyone actually would do that because mm. I don't know if you would be able to handle it. Like, I would find any time that I would give an interview when it would come out, at the start, now I don't read them, but at the start I would read them and then barely be able to get out of bed for the entire day because you just feel as if everyone's talking about you, which is so ridiculous because obviously they're not. Um, but I think it, it is just to be just to be really mindful of yourself, which is why yeah. I wanted to, to email you just to sort of say, you know, I suppose I'm here and you're great and just maybe stay off social media because <laughs> it's really toxic. Um, and there's such a bravery in being honest. Um, and I think our vulnerability can be our greatest strength because it allows other people, it gives other people permission to be vulnerable as well. But it can also just be very exposing and very scary. So I don't know. But it, it can it can be good too, I think, because what Louise is referring to is an interview you may have heard that I did on Brendan O'Connor over the summer. And, you know, what I felt after was I felt great because I felt we spent so much time w when we are doing like media stuff. We spend so much time really saying how great we are. You know, we've written this, we published this and blah, blah, blah. And actually, we don't really talk about failure no. very much. And all our lives have moments of failure in it and moments of unhappiness and things that haven't worked. And actually, I think it can be really good to sort of say, here's something that just got completely messed up. And yeah, you know, to, to an outside eye, things look good in your life, but actually, this isn't. And I think it's good to talk about failure a little bit. I think, and it's interesting to hear both of you say, and, and uh, the vulnerability hangover is an incredible concept. I think that mm. feels exactly what it's like. And um, it, I think when we talk about vulnerability being our greatest strength and, and how um, it can be the most powerful thing that you can do, actually, is to expose or be to open up about failure. But there's always that double-sided part to it, which is that, and I mean, you know, we, it would be lovely if we had this this cathartic narrative where you share things and you're happy by the end and you've healed. But there's always the other side of it, which is that the thing comes back to get you again. Um, and, and you find that the vulnerability, those questions are, are still always there in the back of your head. Um, and so while you can, it can be an amazing validation to share it and affirmation to meet other people and talk to other people, even on social media, um, for whom that is also true, uh, it also, 
it, it's all, it also requires so much emotional labor um, to do that and provokes so many very, very difficult emotions from sadness to anger um, that, uh, that the, and, and Lisa, you referred to it, that that's the cost of it. Um, and while it's really important to, n to not stop the cost from um, silencing you, at the same time, I think it's very, very important as part of the self-care package to recognize the cost. And a student of mine said to ask me recently, she said she would really like, she had a very particular, very powerful story. Um, but her sister had said that if she wrote it, um, and if she pub published it, um, that her sister would no longer speak to her. And obviously, I don't want to get involved in family dynamics and so on. Um, and what I discussed with this student was the possibility of fictionalizing the story as a way of kind of creating distance around it. Um, but, you know, she said, she kept saying to me, what should I do? And um, you, can't, you cannot underestimate the cost to that person of owning her own story. Uh, and, uh, and to say, well, you know, and maybe there are also valid reasons at times for not telling the stories that we have um, as, as, a, as a protective measure. Um, so that's why uh, both speaking out but also listening, I think, is an important way for people to take an activist or an active role um, without always putting themselves on the line for it. It's, it's taken me, I mean, I'm in my 40s. There's a reason I wrote this book now, not 20 years ago. Uh, I have the, I am secure in my life. Um, I am past so much of it. I am able to do it, both personally but also professionally. I published Notes to Self deliberately in July, not during the university term. And I was really scared. And, and those were unfounded fears, but I was really scared what would happen with my students in particular, with me publishing this book, um, and, uh, and how that would expose me. So Tramp Press were amazing um, in terms of making that safer. But again, I think we have to think very consciously about creating a safe public space for voices. Yeah. I'm afraid, I'm thinking that there probably needs to be a part two uh, to this talk <laughs> and I could speak to each of you for an hour at a time. Um, I'm going to be the worst person in the, wor in the world and, and say that we're going to have to end the talk now and if this conversation wants to continue and should continue, we might go up to the Abbey Bar and have a sweet cup of tea mm -hmm. up there. I'd like to thank our, our panel here for talking and I'd like to thank you for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs>